Hello, you're listening to the Northern Agenda podcast, digging into the big political stories in the North from outside the Westminster bubble. I'm Rob Parsons, and this week, the focus of Northern politicians is my home city of Leeds, where the Convention of the North will see hundreds of the region's political and business leaders try and work out how to make our region a powerhouse again. More on that later. But in terms of the national media, the only story in town, as far as the North is concerned, is the absolute chaos of the Rochdale by-election, where, as you might remember from our episode two weeks ago, what started out as a safe Labour seat has now seen the party left without a candidate and voters subjected to one of the most divisive election campaigns in recent years. We got a result from the Greater Manchester Town in the early hours of this morning as this podcast goes out, but did the firebrand former Labour MP George Galloway pull off a shock upset to return him to Parliament? Our man at the by-election count, Joseph Timmon of the Manchester Evening News, sent us this voice note about what's happened. It's been um, a crazy by-election, marred by controversy from the outset and the drama has continued right until the end, even after the results were declared. George Galloway won quite convincingly in the end, 40% of the vote share. The turnout was about 40% as well, um, higher than some people had expected, but Labour's vote absolutely collapsed. Um, They had a candidate on the ballot, but they stopped campaigning for him, obviously, after um, the deeply offensive comments Uh, he made about Israel Um, he could have still won Um, we understand he was campaigning as an independent but he didn't turn up to the um, count and in the end he came fourth Um, remarkably an independent candidate Dave Tully who's a local businessman came second winning 6,000 votes that's still 6,000 behind George Galloway but he beat the Conservatives who came third Labour fourth the Lib Dems fifth, and Reform, who came sixth, former Rochdale MP Simon Danshuk, was standing for the party, which was set up by Nigel Farage. And he attended the count um, with Reform's leader, Richard Tice, um, but he refused to speak to the media. I approached him, um, Simon Danshuk, and told him I was from the Manchester Evening News, I was interested in speaking to him, and uh, he just said, we've put out a statement, and that's it. Um, Richard Tice, however, was speaking to broadcasters, and uh, that statement that Simon Danchuk was referring to was reflected in his comments, uh, in Richard Tice's comments. He claimed that this was not a free and fair election, making quite serious allegations about intimidation and raising concerns about the uh, postal votes um but they swiftly left um after speaking after Richard Tice spoke to the media Simon Danchuk remained tight-lipped and um left didn't wait around for the results and as I said he came sixth in the end George Galloway had loads of supporters there um his arrival was much anticipated for hours um, there was a scramble to go from, you know, the front of the building where his supporters were waiting and then rumours uh, 
emerged that he would arrive at the back of the building for security reasons. So reporters and photographers were running from one side to the other. In the end, he didn't appear uh, until just moments before the results were announced. And um, when he did go on stage, orange confetti was thrown at him um, by a protester claiming that he's a climate change denier. Um, But, you know, he continued unfazed, sent a strong um, critical message to the big parties, in particular Keir Starmer. In fact, Keir Starmer, the first two words um, he uttered after uh, the results were declared, telling the Labour leader that um, this is for Gaza. And uh, he went on to speak about local issues in Rochdale, but it was clear that that was the message he wanted to get across and he's hoping that his victory will inspire others across the country um, to stand against Labour, predominantly um, areas that are upset, angry about Labour's position um, on the war in Gaza. Um, He also wants to target the local council um, and has said that he wants to work with that independent candidate who came second, Dave Tully, to wipe Labour off Rochdale Council um, with his eyes firmly set on the local elections in May. But he did announce um, at a rally at his campaign headquarters afterwards um, that the Workers' Party of Britain, which he leads, will be fielding 59 candidates across the country at the uh, general election. Um, He talked about Rochdale pioneering a new a redrawing of the political map, I think was the words he used. And um, we'll see what this means in the long run. He might not have long as an MP. We don't know when the next general election will be and we don't know how well he'll do when Labour's campaign is out in full force. But um, for now, uh, all we can say is it was quite a convincing victory in the end um, and quite embarrassing for all of the big parties, really. Back to Leeds now, though, and at the Royal Armouries in Leeds, levelling up Secretary Michael Gove and Labour's Deputy Leader Angela Rayner are making their pitch about what their parties can do for the North at the two-day Convention of the North Conference. For their part, the likes of Greater Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham and West Yorkshire Mayor Tracy Braben will be presenting a so-called Manifesto for the North, where they describe how the different parts of the region can work together for the good of the country as a whole. But a report out today sets out how far there still is to go. It says it will be 2080, a full five decades away, before the gap in healthy life expectancy between the North and the South East really changes. The question is, what do we do about it? And this week on the podcast, I've been speaking to Richard Stubbs, CEO of Health Innovation Yorkshire and the Humber, one of the organisations behind a new report that says focusing our attention on creating high-skilled jobs is the best way to get the North off its collective sickbed. The research prompts what I think is quite an interesting question. If we want to save the NHS in the North of England, do we need better hospitals or better train links? But let's set the scene first by hearing more about the findings of today's report from the IPPR North Think Tank. I've been speaking to Marcus Johns, a research fellow and one of the report's authors. He is also a Labour councillor in Manchester about its main findings. 
so just give us the main conclusions from from the report you put out today so the main conclusions from state of the north 2024 is that um, england's regional gaps determine um, whether you will have a shorter sicker um, richer life and how much opportunity that you will be able to access Um, And that when we look at progress over the past 10 years and where we think we might be going based on that progress over the next 10 years, um, it's just far too slow. And those regional gaps that we all know have been in place for such a long time are not really on course to close within um, the timeframes that that, that people would find acceptable. Um, But we also are optimistic and we think that there is a possibility in the next parliament of the right package of policies focused on those areas that could turn that around, backed up by broader, deeper devolution and a higher level of investment um, that could start to kickstart a decade of regional uh, renewal. So the, the report says it will be 20, 2080, so a full five decades away before the gap in healthy life expectancy uh, really changes. And things are actually going to get worse before they get better in terms of health and wealth inequalities, which it feels astonishing given the focus that there has apparently been on levelling up, uh, perhaps faded a bit recently. But, you know, in in recent years, that has been one of the big political talking points. But for all of that, the country is going to get more unequal before things get any better. I mean, that's astonishing, isn't it? It is. It is astonishing. And particularly given how important levelling up has been in recent years to um, the kind of political um, cycle that um, the progress is, is, is so slow. And actually, depending on how you cut it, um, even getting worse. Um, so, for instance, in the northeast, life, healthy life expectancy um, is set to decline based on current trends. Um, the gap between the north and uh, London, the capital, is, is not actually set to close at all on current trends. Um, so it is, it is really shocking that we are in this position. But I think it's clear why we are in this position. Um, you know, decentralization, devolution, giving more powers to local places has uh, happened slowly. And it is a process that will take time. But at the same time, we simply haven't seen the kind of investment sustained at the right scale over a long term period of time that that can start to turn these things around. Um, And I think we've had a lot of uh, chopping and changing, shall we say. There's not been kind of the commitment to um, missions in the way that we thought there was going to be. So we had the levelling up white paper, then the levelling up and regeneration act and all of the missions that were set out in that. But we haven't seen that backed up with actual policy action. In fact, what we've had is lots of promises that then like HS2 and and lots of other things have been cancelled, delayed, um, and they just aren't rising from the rhetoric to delivering change. And I think that's why we're seeing that on current trends, things are not set to get better. So what do we do to close the gap? If the things that have been tried, perhaps with not enough commitment, have not worked thus far, what, 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 what does IPPR North think it needs to happen now? So we think that there need to be five areas of focus that can really kickstart that decade of renewal that I was talking about, where those regional inequalities start to to close. The first is on rebuilding voters' trust. And we think that what that needs to look like is empowering local places, so continuing devolution, but also sticking to promises. You know, a lot of the um, year that we're going to see is, is, is going to be focused on winning votes, but we need to maintain the trust 
of those voters um, in the future. We need to see all political parties hoping to form the next government, not just making promises, but actually committing to genuinely delivering those. So restoring trust and delivering um, are really key. We want to see wealth rebalanced, and we think that the best way to do that is a uh, a reform to, to capital tax gains that taxes incomes from wealth at the same rate as incomes from work, and then putting that to work to invest in um, regional economic development at the levels that we see in Germany, which in an English context, we think is around £7.6 billion a year, um, with some funding left over to, I think, stabilise the kind of local government finances, because we are seeing a real surge of collapse in councils, which takes me to the next point, which is around um, actually when we talk about devolution, we talk about empowering places, the way that um, local places have been resourced and funded um, has been moving in the wrong direction. Actually, financial power has been centralising in Westminster. So we need to put that right. We need to fairly fund local government to enable them to take action on a number of the outcomes that we see. Um, A long-term green industrial strategy that marshals different funding pots that sets out how um, we want the economy to develop, to grow the economy, to decarbonise the economy and to rebalance the economy um, is really key um, to create opportunity. And then we want to see targeted action on health, and particularly in those places where healthy life expectancy is the worst, a a targeted programme of looking at the foundations of health. And that cuts across a number of the policy areas that I've already spoken to. We are talking about access to good jobs, good public transport, clean air. We're talking about all public services in a place coming together to raise health in the places um, where it is where it is lowest, um, which we call uh, the uh, happy zones. Um, so, um, you know, we need to see targeted local action on health um, as well to underpin a number of those other priorities too. I guess I'm interested in how difficult it's going to be to make the case to policymakers for spending what I guess is going to have to be a lot of extra money, putting a lot of extra resource into this issue at a time when got the budget coming up. We know the the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, is reluctant to open the purse strings due to the state of the public finances. Rachel Reeves, the Shadow Chancellor, is also quite reluctant, seemingly, to make any big spending commitments. It's going to be tough, isn't it, to make the case that we ought to be spending all this extra money on an agenda that is not going to bear fruit for decades to come, potentially. I think when we're thinking about closing regional equalities and we're thinking about the fact that more productive economies tend to be more equal, that healthier populations can be more productive, that there is also a very clear point that this kind of investment is an investment in our future. You know, it isn't it isn't pouring cash away. It is investment that is going to um, increase the size of our economy and 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 bring returns back to the state in future overall. Um, yes, that that requires a level of confidence and trust over um, the coming years that um, when those those gaps close, that it will happen. Um, but I do think there's a number of things here. So some of it is around marshalling existing resources better. So having that overarching strategy, thinking long term rather than these kind of short term competitions that ultimately are not are not changing the dial on, on regional inequalities. Um, some of it is around making sure that local places um, are um, 
properly funded to be able to do the things that we are telling them to do. It's a much better state of affairs to have a proper fair funding fan, uh, plan sorry, for local government rather than begging them to sell off the public's assets because they're, they're running out of money um, or having to step in and, and save it because they, they, they've um, effectively um, gone bankrupt. A, a longer term plan is a much more sustainable um, uh, state of affairs. Um, but we've also thought about, in terms of the policy package that we've set out, the ways that, that these things can be funded. And I appreciate, you know, the point that um, the, the Chancellor might say that he doesn't want to, um, he doesn't want to raise tax levels, but that, that's a political choice. And having a fairer tax system can also um, allow for more investment. You know, when we talk about taxing income uh, from wealth at the same level as taxing income from work, that is a fairer state of affairs. It's a fairer way to manage our tax system. And it has the benefit of creating a new income stream that could be used to fund regional economic development. While when we think about our health and prosperity um, improvement zones, we are talking about how you could use local and national levies on health harming industries. So those industries that are causing some of the problems that we're ultimately trying to address. So we've thought about in terms of putting this package of policies together, what it might look like to fund them. But we are also very clear that we do need to raise investment levels. One of the reasons that our economy is not as strong as it ought to be, that our regions are so unequal and that life chances are not what we'd want them to be is because we are not investing enough in the kind of things that make that happen. Marcus Johns, IPPR North, thank you so much. Thank you, Rob. So as we've been hearing, the links between the health of the local economy in different areas of the north and the health of the population itself are starting to get more attention from policymakers. But now we know the problem exists, what do we do about it? There's actually a new report out proposing a way forward. It's a white paper called Empowering Local Places for Health and Prosperity, and it sets out 10 key recommendations to narrow the healthy life expectancy gap while also growing a more inclusive economy. The report comes from Health Innovation, Yorkshire and Humber, Yorkshire Universities and the NHS Confederation. So I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast today by Richard Stubbs, the CEO of Health Innovation, Yorkshire and Humber and one of the key people involved in the report. Richard, welcome. Hi, nice to be here. I was at an event uh, in Leeds a few days ago where this report was launched and I've, uh, I heard experts from a host of different fields talk about how we can move this very important agenda forward. But for our listeners, for the benefit of our listeners, can you just explain a bit about the report uh, sort of how, and, and how did it come about? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's um, one in a series, actually, of um, some long-standing work we've been doing. As you mentioned, our partners, you know, um, Yorkshire Universities and the NHS Confederation, alongside ourselves at Health Innovation Yorkshire Humber, for the last five years now, certainly pre-pandemic, we've been working on how do you elevate and escalate this really interesting challenge and opportunity around health and wealth? How do you really start to understand how a region's economy powers the health for its local population? and how a healthier population in turn becomes a more productive, economically driven population, and that kind of um, beneficial cycle that you can start to create. And I think that's particularly prevalent, uh, or you know, the need is particularly stark across the north of England. It was stark before the pandemic. I think the pandemic only highlighted the health inequalities that we face across our communities. 
So this report is, I think, moving on from some of our previous work, our conferences, our webinars, our reports, looking back at our previous recommendations and how we think the the environment, the political, the political and policy environment has shifted towards this space in the years that we've been doing this work. But then also thinking ahead to the future and thinking, so what are the new recommendations for not just government, but also for our regional NHS and civic leaders? And now actually in this new report for business leaders as well, starting to talk about what's the role of the private sector in helping us to be more productive and healthier. Yeah, and we'll come back to what more the private sector can do uh, shortly. And I was I was really interested to read the report because when you cover sort of regional inequalities uh, across the north, as, as I do quite a lot, and you look at uh, sort of league tables about things like, uh, you know, poor health and crime and all these other, uh, you know, metrics that areas don't want to be at the, the bottom end of. And it's often the same areas, places like Blackpool or Middlesbrough or places in, you know, in, in Yorkshire that are at the wrong end of uh, tables, both for poor health, but also for the state of their economy. And I guess that is what, you know, the levelling up agenda is supposed to be about. And, you know, the government is putting money into into all these places to at least try and rectify this situation. But there was um, an interesting phrase in, in the report. It described a, a burning platform uh, for change, which is a very evocative, uh, evocative piece of language. Can you just explain why now the issues are particularly more acute than they have been in the past? I think we all know um, that you know regional uh, disparity is widening. We know that health inequalities are widening in the post-pandemic sense rather than decreasing. And we know that we're still the most uh, economically unbalanced country um, in, in, in many, uh, compared to many of our Western counterparts. So the reason why it's a burning platform is because we've really got to think about the state the NHS is in now and how we can start to take the pressure off our NHS services when it comes to our our regional and our local health as opposed to healthcare delivery. You know, in a post-pandemic world, the NHS is still under immense pressure to deliver. There is still a huge backlog in terms of our elective waiting list. And we are becoming, as Marmot just demonstrated with his most recent report, you know, the, the economic health inequalities are widening rather than narrowing. It's not to the NHS to be the sole saviour of our nation's health. We have to think about the other wider social determinants that are going to play a role in helping us to be healthier as citizens. And that's why we think putting the focus on economic prosperity as a key indicator, as a key as a key uh, 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 North Star for our healthcare is, is what we need to talk about more. It was one of the things that came out of the the launch event that I was at on, on on Friday. I was really interested to hear you talk about how your view on this had, has had shifted a bit. And perhaps a few years ago, if someone were to have asked you what is the best way to make a population healthier or an area healthier, you might have said, or other people might have said, put more money into hospitals, more GPs, uh, you know, reduce waiting lists, that kind of thing. Um, which I guess for many people that would seem like the most sensible way of making people healthier. But is it fair to say now that you've come to the conclusion that actually, if you you know if you're going to do one thing to improve the health of a population, it would be to create more high skilled jobs. That is the way that you make an area healthier. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And that's as as I said on Friday at the event you talked about. Uh, that's been my own personal journey. Um, obviously, we still need 
better hospitals. We still need um, more NHS resources. I wouldn't stand here somebody from the NHS and say we don't. But actually, that's about helping us when we are sick, predominantly. Um, I've certainly discovered, um, you know, through my own experiences, helping to support a local enterprise partnership, being very close to our, our new mayoral combined authorities and our metro mayors, and just looking at the investment that we make on education, skills, transport, housing, but particularly winning and sustaining high-value jobs for our region. Those are really the key um, um, assets which are going to deliver long-term sustainable changes to our health outcomes. Um, you know, good jobs, good work will lead to good health. And so having a, a, a northern um, ecosystem that both generates um, domestic jobs, but also has that inward investment pull to bring jobs into our region, I think is hugely important. And as, as I said, to change my view in terms of, you know, what are the key, if you had a magic wand, you know, is it more hospitals? Is it better jobs? I'm certainly falling on the better jobs side. And actually within that, therefore, you start talking about transport links, because actually to get better jobs, you need to be able to access those jobs. So it's a really interesting personal journey for me that actually, you know, would I rather have more hospitals or better train links? I'm starting to think trains might be the way to go. That is really, really interesting. Because obviously we're at a point, aren't we, where, uh, and, and I guess it, it's more acute at this time of year where, you know, the hospital waiting lists are getting higher and there's queues outside A&Es of ambulances and, you know, you see pe- queues of people waiting to get an NHS dentist and this kind of thing. So obviously the NHS is not in a great state at the moment and our health services are struggling in a number of ways. But um, it, it seems like, yeah, like you said, there is maybe a growing consensus that the way out of that problem is not just to pour more money into the NHS, it's to reduce the demand on services by making people healthier. And the way that you do that is is making the area that they live in more, more prosperous. Absolutely. And it's, and it's very much an and also, you know, we need both. We absolutely need both. We should have the best, you know, hospital and primary care systems in the world. And we need to invest in that. And we need to invest in our frontline NHS workforce, but also, we need to think about jobs. And I think particularly with this work, um, when we started this five years ago, I personally believe that what we needed to do was bring the NHS maybe closer to this this line of thinking and and to really understand, so how does the NHS and some of our other anchor institutions, what is their responsibility, their leadership accountability for this piece? I think since we started this work, we've then had some really interesting um, um, policy changes um, from NHS England and government, such as you know our new integrated care boards that are now you know, 42 integrated care boards all across the country. They have a very specific fourth pillar of responsibility around their responsibility for local economic growth. So we're starting to see how uh, politicians and policymakers are recognising that actually it is that place-based um, kind of holistic approach to citizens' benefits which will, I think, lead to the, the more sustainable notion of us all being healthier and having access to good jobs is, is one of the ways that we're going to do that. So there's 10 key recommendations in the report. I mean, maybe perhaps you could just pick out one or two of the main ones if people were going to take anything away from this report that you know, you'd like to see put into action. What, 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 what would those be? We've tried to kind of condense our recommendations into this notion of four Ps to try and really get... Uh, 
a strong message out to um, what, what do we mean by this report? What do we want people to be advocates for and ambassadors for in terms of the key messages we want the North in particular to, to give to government? And those four Ps, you know, we, it has to be people focused. You know, people have to be at the heart of, of our new ways of working. But the second P is place-based. I mean, we've talked about place quite a few times. Um, I consider myself to be a place-based leader. Really understanding how do you devolve accountability, responsibility and genuine powers to place so that place-based leaders can take a place-based approach to the allocation of resources. Understanding how much money needs to go into the NHS, into other kind of local authority services, as well as understanding how a place comes together to drive economic growth for its citizens. So place-based is really important and partnership is the other, um, is the third P. So working in partnership with each other, understanding that Actually, when you look across the breadth of both the public and private sector, we're often working on the same challenges, but working on those challenges in silos, um, perhaps with a bit of translational barriers to stop us from really understanding how if we come together in partnership, effectively, you know, both public and private sectors in place are working towards better economic growth for region, driving jobs, driving sustainability, driving investments, driving health, driving better infrastructure. We're all in the same game, we perhaps don't work in partnership um, as well as we should to drive that. And it needs to be purpose-led, you know, the fourth piece. So that combined partnership effort should be guided by that single shared purpose. So understanding that common underpinning of the real issues affecting our region and our specific communities. So those are our four Ps, you know, people-focused, place-based, partnership-powered and and purpose-led. And there's a role for local leaders, isn't there, in your in your vision? I know the report talks about empowering local leaders to sort of drive this agenda forward. I mean, obviously, in uh, you know, in Yorkshire, we've got uh, two metro mayors, uh, both of whom have uh, some levers that they can pull to boost economic growth. They don't have uh, direct powers over health in the way that Andy Burnham does to some extent in. Greater Manchester. I mean, would you like to see the likes of Tracy Braben and Oliver Coppard in, in Yorkshire and whoever becomes the, the Metro Mayor in, in North Yorkshire uh, in, in a few weeks get more powers directly to influence the health service? Would that be a, a beneficial thing from your point of view? I'm not sure, Rob, actually. I'm, I think I'm quite agnostic about it. Um, it's interesting to look over the Pennines and see what's happening um, in Manchester. And I think, you know, not just the North, but other other areas are looking, you know, with interest about what Manchester's been able to do as a result of those devolved powers. I think it's really interesting in, in South, if I take South Yorkshire as an example, Oliver is, um, you know, he chairs our integrated care partnership. So without having to have statutory power from government, he has a leadership role when it comes to how you bring together not just I suppose, acute healthcare delivery-focused organisations, but also our community, our voluntary sectors, and others who are all, I suppose, have a say, have a role to play in our local healthcare. So I'd be interested to know from Oliver whether he thought that in itself um, would constitute um, enough of a lever to pull from a, a Metro Mayor point of view. But really, for me, rather than Mayor's having accountability for the delivery and the allocation of resources for our health care services. It's more about how can we devolve greater powers for all the other wider social determinants of health that actually mayors and their mayoral command authority um, executives and officers may be better placed to influence in a more holistic way. So allowing our mayoral command authorities, allowing people like Tracy and Oliver 
to be able to, at place level, make sense of our transport infrastructure, our growth hubs, our university sector, our skills delivery, and the assets of our region and our kind of industrial bases, which mean that we are starting to think long-term about if in South Yorkshire we're going to get behind advanced manufacturing and clean energy, how do we ensure that our skills sector are turning out our local kids so that they in turn can go and win the high-value jobs that those manufacturing um, um, opportunities will be coming in the next five to ten years. So it's that holistic, almost pipeline of education, skills, housing and transport that gets people to the jobs and then using their economic growth powers as mayors to win those jobs that I think will have the biggest beneficial, sustainable action on our healthcare services. How are we doing in that regard at the moment in terms of tying all these elements together? Is that happening to the degree that you would want it to happen or is there still a little way to go in your view? There's always going to be a way to go. But I think actually, you know, having been in and around Yorkshire and Humber, I've been chief exec here at Health Innovation Yorkshire and Humber now for 10 years. I'm starting to see, and you know, for, and for some time, not just not just um, you know, in, in the last few um, in the last period, starting to see real coalitions of leaders from different sectors coming together as we talked about with that single purpose-led mission to say we are here to deliver for our citizens together. And you're starting to see some really interesting case studies about what does that actually really look like. So last month I visited um, uh, the Glass House in Barnsley. You know, phenomenal you know council-led leadership to bring you know a new retail offer to Barnsley. Great in and of itself, but for me, what makes it incredibly inspiring is that they've then also brought outpatients and diagnostic services out of the hospital into the the retail centre at the heart of Barnsley. What that means is it takes pressure off the footprint of the hospital. We always know that hospitals, you know, car parking, you know, just to basically the, the churn of people always puts pressure on a hospital system. But it's bringing thousands of people a year out of hospital and into retail settings where they can park easier, they can access these services easier. They're actually then spending more money in and around the town centre, which is helping to regenerate the town. And actually, because of the accessibility of those diagnostic services, we're also seeing an increase in um in, 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 in scanning and testing rates, which is helping to health, address health inequalities because people who otherwise maybe would have not attended their hospital appointment are finding it far easier to go straight into the town centre, park, have their diagnostic test and also spend money in the town centre while they're at it. I think it's that kind of joined up thinking that's starting to really start to understand how we use our, our local pound better for the benefit of all our citizens and also for the benefit of our public health services. So a, a shopping centre that's helping to bring down NHS waiting lists. That's a, quite, a, quite an achievement. Fantastic. So, um, Richard, the, uh, this report, well, this, this podcast is going out on the day of the Convention of, Convention of the North, the big gathering of political and business leaders uh, all coming together at the Royal Armouries in Leeds. There's, I think, some quite big sort of central government figures, Michael Gove and Angela Rayner are both going to be there. I mean, what would you like to see from government, whoever, whichever party it is in power in a year or so's time after the election? What would you like them to do to further this agenda? 
I think we need to continue on our devolution journey. And we need to think both about how we continue to think about the kind of powers that need to come out of Whitehall and go to trusted local leaders of any political persuasion. This is not a political point. But basically, how do you get the resources of this country into a place where at place level, people can be trusted to spend it for the benefit of their local citizens? Because I think that's where the most efficiencies of how we use the money um, in a holistic way can be delivered. I think also, and I think this is particularly for the north of England, we've talked a lot about levelling up over the last five years. What does it mean? How does it actually manifest itself? For me, it's really important that levelling up in the north isn't also at the same time billed as levelling down across the rest of the country. This isn't, in my opinion, a zero-sum game. This is about levelling up for the north of England is a productivity offer to UK PLC as a whole. So we know that, for instance, you know, we have £13.2 billion across the north of England in lost productivity as a result of our health inequalities across the north. So government helping us to devolve our resources, spend them more wisely for the benefit of the health of all our citizens, in turn helps us to drive at least an extra £13 billion worth of funding back into the UK economy. So it's an offer, not an ask. And I think we need to we need to frame that as the North is an investable proposition. Help us with to help us win more jobs, help us to be healthier. That in turn will help UK PLC as a whole. Let's hope they're listening. Richard Stubbs, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McCoughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye.